This is the Living Vertizano podcast brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today looks at Acts 8, 1 through 3 and 9, 1 through 19a, recounting a part of Paul's story. Together, we discuss the importance of waiting in expectation for God to speak and living in obedience to what he says. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizano Podcast, back with you this week to start a new season. Um, we last week finished our conversation on, uh, I guess technically it was Haggai, Malachi, and Advent. So that was the closing of our second season as a podcast. And now we are we have the opportunity to move into this uh, a new new thing. Um and so this season, we are going to be working through the book of Romans. Um, but before we get to Romans, uh, we're going to spend the next two weeks discussing part of Paul's story as we think this is kind of an important piece before we jump into a whole book on his theology and, and his understanding of God and this relationship thing with God. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a. Um, and with this, we'll be exploring Paul's life just before and just after his encounter with the risen Christ. And I believe we have Derek reading for us today. Derek is back with us. Welcome back, Derek. It's good um, to be back. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, so Derek, would you mind reading Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and then chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a? Yeah, so chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Chapter 9 Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue, synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right. Thank you for reading that for us, Derek. Um, I think before I ask my usual questions of where we're going, what are we, what are we talking about, what are we seeing, um, the first thing that I want to draw our attention to is um, at the beginning of the episode, I made the statement that uh, we were going to be starting in Acts so we could get some background information on Paul. Um, but then as we read our passage, as, as Derek read our passage today, uh, the name that kept being mentioned was Saul. Um, and so it would seem as though we're having a conversation about two different people. And so um, I just wanted to kind of straight from the top um, say it's the same person. Uh, Saul is Paul. Paul is Saul. Um, really, at, at this point, you see him referenced as Saul mostly, right? And then when we get to uh, reading his letters, when we get to later on in the story, we start seeing him referenced as Paul. Um, I think for me, the the thing that was very surprising as I was looking into this further um, is I had always assumed that it was much like um, the the Jacob and Israel thing, where it was like from now on, like God, when he made this this agreement, this uh, promise, um, said from now on you'll be called Israel to Jacob. Like I thought that that was kind of what happened in Saul slash Paul's life was before he uh, encountered Jesus, he was Saul. And after he encountered Jesus, he was Paul. Uh, but that's not actually the case. Um, Saul is his uh, Jewish name, and Paul is his Greco-Roman name. And um, so depending on who he is ministering to, depending on who he is talking to, um, we get the, the the different name for him. And so right now, with the context around him, how he is um, engaging with the religious leaders of Israel, uh, we see him as Saul, and later on we'll see him as Paul. But for now, we're we're talking about this guy Saul, but that's also the guy Paul who writes the letter of Romans. And so, with that, um, I come to the question now: what What are you seeing? Uh, what are your thoughts? Where are we going with this passage today? Well, one of the things that w- helped me, and really helps me with any time we look at narratives is to put myself in the place of the characters that are presented in the story. Uh, So for example, in this one, we really see two major characters emerge, although we could have conversations about some of the side characters that are there as well. But I could think, okay, Saul, what was he experiencing before, during, and after his, this encounter with Jesus, um, what were his thoughts? What were his feelings? Like, what did he, what did he see? What did he hear? Um, just kind of, kind of become Saul in that moment. 
And, and through that, then I can make, I, I guess I can, he becomes more relatable. And, and now I can begin to hear Jesus speaking through Saul's experience to me in my life and speaking into my specific experiences as well, as I explore what it would look like to respond like Saul did in these situations. And then the same could be said for Ananias. So I think it might be helpful for us as we move through this conversation to kind of um, go that direction with this, and then we'll see where we branch out from there. All right. That sounds like a good plan. So uh, I guess let's just start with Saul slash Paul first and begin to ask the question like what as we start this narrative on Saul um why is he doing what he's doing where is this coming from um what might he be thinking in association with this well he's a pharisee so he obviously doesn't believe that Jesus is the messiah mm-hmm. so it stands to reason like what he is doing makes sense from that perspective right of why he would be trying to destroy the church because he doesn't he believes that they're all wrong that this is a false a false gospel going out and so um, for him you know he is he's doing what he has known up to this point in his life to be true and so he is defending his faith and so if we view it from that perspective it makes it easier to like understand why Paul is doing what he is or Saul is doing what he is I, I think that's a uh a really important call out, especially as we're, we work through this conversation, uh, today, because, um, I think oftentimes we'll read this story with our understanding or our lens, which our understanding, our lens is that Jesus is who he says he is. And so we're like, of like, of course, Paul is wrong. And so we don't really get why he would be so zealous in such a wrong direction. Um, but when we recognize that like he's operating on his best understanding that he has encountered his entire life, and this guy Jesus is really new on the scene, teaching in a, what seems to be contrary to tradition, like thousands of years of tradition and thousands of years of experiencing, um, their understanding of experiencing God, like you can understand why Saul would be doing what he is doing. And and it makes perfect sense. And it actually becomes hard to blame him. Like you can, you can see it and go, Oh no, Saul's, Saul's like doing a good thing. It doesn't look good. It doesn't sound good, but Saul is doing a good thing according to his convictions and his beliefs. Yeah, and I think you can see that even with God, like God's interaction with with Saul. Like he's not like you're wrong. Like he's just you know, I don't know. I feel like it's not like that. It feels more like with Peter when we went through Matthew. I don't. I'm not envisioning like Jesus like confronting Saul and and in this like angry tone. Um, it's more like a, Hey, you're, you're going the wrong way kind of tone. At least that's the way I would view it. Less like a harsh in his, you know, his tone. It's as if Saul's or Paul's zealousness is met with God's love. And in the, in the midst of that, I, I guess I get this picture of Jesus as he's walking on the earth and having these interactions similarly with the Pharisees. And he refers to them as blind guides. And then we get this 
this literal and figurative image of Paul being blind and he's blinded and he has these scales that are covering his eyes and he can't see, he can't see the truth of who Jesus is. And so it's causing him to act in a way that's contrary to what God desires of him and for him. And as we're sitting here talking about this, I, I, I guess maybe I see a little bit of what God sees in Saul as potential because he sees a heart that is zealous for him and he goes after that heart and then he just brings clarity and direction. And that creates, I mean, incredible work on behalf of the kingdom and spreading the gospel and accomplishing the great commission that Jesus gave right before he left. Yeah. All the right traits just like guided in the wrong direction. And so, you know, Jesus comes and, and they have this encounter that completely turns him on his head. So, you know, Jesus talked about his, his kingdom being different and how it was upside down, how it was, you know, going to turn everything on, on its head. It, for Paul, it took an experience like this, or for Saul, you know, whichever name you want to use. Um, but in this instance, it took, it took God removing something so he became dependent on him in a way that he never had been before. Yeah, I think, I guess when I hear you say that, Derek, like up to this point, knowing what we know, and I would, I'll confess, probably I, I know little, uh, but knowing what I know about kind of the the power structure that, that exists and how, um, how things like functioned within like the, the synagogue, Paul's zeal is what would have elevated him, what would have um, furthered his career. His, his head knowledge and his um, acting out of that head knowledge is what would have led to promotion and kind of moving up in the ranks. And here, like that, that is stripped of him. And no longer is he able to be dependent on like his own abilities, his own understanding, his own reasoning, or even his own senses. Like in this point when he encounters Jesus and is blinded, like he's even stripped of his senses and he is dependent on others in a way that he probably hasn't ever been before. And so I'm sure this this time not only was it disorienting because it's flipping on its head everything he's understood from a like who is god perspective it's also flipping on its head like it, him his personal like understanding like it's it's just a really disorienting time for him and in this place Jesus is able to to begin to work in him and on him well, for someone who's like really stuck on these like traditions or rituals to have that, <clears throat> to have his sight taken away is a way, I mean, I believe for God to help reorient his heart because he can't rely on these things that he has so much in the past. But at the same time, it also causes him to have a heightened sense of hearing so for the for these days, like all he can do is sit, listen, and wait. 
because he can't act on whatever he's told because like he would need someone to help him get to where he's going. It would also change like his sense of smell. It would be different. It would be heightened. You would probably notice things that you didn't notice before. And you would, even your taste would be different because like all your other senses that you have are going to be heightened when you have one gone. And so I imagine like stripping that one thing away allows God to begin to reorient his heart for what he has because he is zealous, because he has all these traits that God can use to like change the trajectory of other people, uh, whether it be Gentile or Jew. He has the ability to use these traits that Paul has to change the the trajectory of the church that we come to understand in the New Testament. And so because he's stripped something that seems so basic away, now God has the opportunity to just begin to reorient his heart to be able to, when he comes to this point of having his sight back, it's like now I, I, I understand more than I understood before because of what God's done. And goodness, as we're moving out of this season of lament, and you say that, it makes me think back to like, we've, we've talked a lot about loss lately. And we've talked a lot about struggles and difficulty. And um, I think this kind of ties into that similar conversation where when God takes things away or when we perceive it as God not intervening, at least to prevent that taking away, right? When God allows things to happen that are difficult and cause loss and pain, um, we, we've talked about already how we trust that he's working in those and we have to believe that he's working in those and we rely on each other in those. But also, as you've just pointed out and reminded us again, he can use those moments to really work on our hearts. And then as he restores that joy back into our lives, as he restores the hope and the peace and all these things back into our lives, um, we have a remolded heart that looks closer to what he intended for us to begin with anyway. And you see that played out here in Saul. I think when I look at Saul and, you know, where he, where he was and kind of where God brings him to, it comes down to his response. Like he, he's faced with this, this something that's so different than what he was zealous about. He, and his reaction, you know, he could have been angry. He could have had a very different response, but his response is to get baptized and to follow the way. And I, I think about times when I, when God is, shown me that I'm wrong. And there've been times when my response has been defensive. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I'm, I'm doing things the best I can. And there've been times when I've been humbled and accepting like, Oh, thank you Lord for revealing that. And I think that's what I get from, from Paul's story is his response is either could, could have gone a different ways, but his response is, yes, I'm going to follow. And I think that is a big deal when we're faced with things that are contrary to what we have thought before and what, what is our response going to be? I think that's a good call out, especially for Saul, because it's, I would even say that the response that we see in Saul is not the response that you would expect to see. 
based on what we know about him, based on his zeal, just based on, like, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Like, you get this picture of Saul that he is, he has, like, this one-track mind. He is 100%, like, um, sold that he is going in the right direction, that he is doing the right thing. There is no convincing him otherwise. In fact, he's even going to other officials and convincing them that he is doing the right thing so he can get permissions to continue doing it in other places. Like you would think that even a moment like this would still not be enough. He would get defensive. He might even explain it away. Like it was a bright light. Of course I'm going to get blinded by that bright light for a few days. Um, and then just move on because he's so sure in the direction that he is going. But I suppose that's just how, powerful that encounter with the risen savior was for him that yeah he had the option he could have responded in pride or he could have responded in humility and he assumed the posture of humility and and recognized the error of his way recognized maybe how misguided he was um and and as a result he was be, he was able to be used as an incredible instrument as you talk about this piece, this humility piece and the humbling of, of himself, I am like, as I imagine myself in, I guess in his shoes, I can't imagine like the weight of remorse. Mm -hmm. Like if I, if I choose to accept this as true, then I have just like, I have just done horrible, horrible things. And I, I think when we look around the world, there's a lot of people who feel unusable. Like God can't use me. God can't change me. God won't meet me because I've done these horrible things. And even after they've had an encounter with Jesus, they still struggle to believe that he can still use what's left of them. And I feel like Saul's story is a perfect, is a perfect picture of what God's grace really looks like played out because he really does. I mean, I, I imagine there's this whole underlying emotional like devastation and trauma and that has to be dealt with that, that Jesus probably works on Saul with over a course of, I'm guessing probably years to heal that and to, to encourage him and remind him, look, we're going to do more good. We're going to make up for it. Just stay with me, stay with me, you know, be encouraged, be encouraged, trust me. And all the while, these doubts still, I'm, I'm sure the enemy trying to use those doubts to creep in and say, yeah, but you, you did all these horrible things. There's no, there's no way. There's no way they're going to believe you. The disciples won't accept you. You're never going to be able to do these things for the kingdom. And so I just, I, I feel like in his story, we get, we get this great sense of encouragement. And even when, when our little mistakes seem so big, like how could he forgive me? again, because I've asked him again and again, and I keep messing up the same thing. It's like God's grace is enough for all of it. I think with that piece, um, something you said in there, Natasha, it, it's a, I don't know that it's a tangent, maybe a parallel to, um, but slightly different conversation with this humility piece. As you were talking, I was thinking about like, yeah, he probably has a lot of as he's sitting there blinded, right? 
coming to the realization of who Jesus is, what the weight of what he has been doing. Like the, the thing we opened with was Paul being present and, and affirming the death of Stephen. A man filled with the Holy spirit. Right. And commissioned by the disciples. hundred percent. And then continues with this like bloodthirsty zeal, right? Like we, we see that. And so I, I would imagine there is this heavy weight on his shoulders, like you have pointed out, but he's also got these people that are with him that he has. I don't know if he's necessarily convinced them enough or if just they were already sold on the idea, but they were like, yeah, we're going to follow him. I mean, I would assume that like Paul's kind of the most important one when it talks about the men traveling with Saul, because all it says is the men traveling with Saul. It doesn't actually begin to expand on who they are. Um, it would seem as though Saul is kind of the leader of them. And so when I was thinking about this time where he's sitting there in, in remorse and, and like feeling the weight of the things that he has done, I'm also thinking about like for him to respond in humility also means that he has to go in front of those people that he is convinced of one thing and confess how he had fallen short, where he had missed it. Like this wasn't just his decision to follow Jesus was not just this individual. All right, I'm going to follow Jesus. And then he moves on. And then it's like people that he had never encountered, but who had heard of him are the people he ministered to. No, there there's people who know him intimately that he now has to go and talk to, or at least have this conversation with like, they're going to know. And, and that, that would seem like a very daunting thing as well. Like a daunting task to not just have to be the one to eat crow, right? Like not just have to be the one who is, who is being humble personally, but also to then have to be humble before other people around me, that would be overwhelming. And that's kind of just all sitting there brewing for the three days as he's blind. It feels very much like his, like his dying of self is taking place over the course of these three days. Like he's faced with all of this stuff that he has done, recognizing that this Jesus that he was you know, persecuting his followers really was who he said he was. And while this weight must have felt like heavy, at the same time, I feel like he's probably coming to this place of peace as he recognizes yep. what what has happened. Like, even when we think we're so bad and we're so wretched and we're so awful, and we are, God recognizes the traits within us that are effective that he can use. And he's like, you're no longer going to be who you were. I'm going to come into your life and I'm radically going to change you. And so that like this three days, I imagine it's a really a dying of self. Like this old person is just falling away as he's praying over these three days. And he's just thinking and meditating on what has taken place. And I mean, how amazing that must have felt for Paul, like to have this and then to have some to have an Ananias in his life that God calls on. You know, we talked about the humility of Paul, 
Imagine the humility that, that Ananias has to wrestle with, knowing what what Saul has done to all of these believers, all these followers, how he's persecuting them, and he's desiring to des- destroy the church. And God speaks to you, and he's like, I need you to do this. I need you to go lay your hands on this, this guy. But don't you know what he's done? Don't you know what he is? his life was like before? Like, I don't know what the questions were like, but I'm like, you're going to have to give me more than this. Like, I got to have something more. And the humility of Ananias to just be like Jesus, to get a command and to be obedient to the will of the Father. That should be our desire in our life. And we see that lived out in Ananias, someone who just goes and does what God asks. And then it's like, Saul's, his, his, his whole process of repentance becomes complete through this act of someone being willing to, to obey what God has done. So I see the humility of Paul, absolutely, but I also see the humility of someone who had to be like, God, do you realize what you're asking me to do? Like, I, I I feel like my response would be way different. I mean, I'd like to sound really like self-righteous and be like, oh, yeah, I would have done it. But, um, yeah, no, I'd like to think it would be the same. But, I mean, thank God for an Ananias. You mentioned Ananias's humility. And I, I guess I hadn't even gotten to that part because I was still stuck on his courage. That's right. Like, I imagine be, that would be terrifying. Mm-hmm. God, you want me to go to this person who's coming here to, like, kill us and imprison us and destroy us. And you want me to go to him. And then you want me to do like you said, and you want me to do him a favor, you know? So there's this, there's this favor that restores him to his full faculties. (laughs) Right. So so then he can come after me. So I don't know. I, I guess Derek, I guess shamefully, I'm kind of like you, I, you know, I'm, I'm like Jonah. I mean, I'm boat and I'm out of there the opposite direction. And the tragic like reality of that is I think that all too often that's, that's where we land Right, where we're stuck on this pride piece. Well, why should I extend that forgiveness to them? Why should I extend that mercy to them? Or this lack of courage piece where you're terrified to believe that God is going to be faithful and see you through this and it will be okay because it's part of his plan, no matter what happens. And we get stuck and I mean, I I can't imagine what the New Testament would look like if either one of these two men had said no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. If Paul had been stuck in his shame or if he had been unwilling to humble himself or if Ananias had been, you know, too afraid or or too too arrogant to extend, you know, God's grace to Paul, what that would have looked like. We, We I mean most of what we we know about the early church says that that Saul did a good majority of of the mission work to the gentile world right. and and we're um, I think all of us do you have any jewish roots <laughs> nope. i think all of us are among the gentiles you know and so if we don't have paul maybe like maybe this doesn't move in the right. way that and i'm sure god would have done it because it's god and because he always accomplishes his end but just how different that would have looked right. and um, the faithfulness and the obedience in the midst of like what seems completely ridiculous and absurd is it's amazing. It's amazing. 
Yeah, I think you just hit on something really important um, between the the two things and this idea that like how different would the New Testament have looked? Would we look today if not for the obedience of both of these these individuals and their participation in God's mission, right, and His intention for what was happening? And I think. Um, there's a fine balance that we need to strike because we recognize that like God is omnipotent. So he is all powerful. He can do all things, but there's also this, I guess, even expectation of our participation in his mission. Like we are the vessels that he has chosen to use. And so I don't want to overstate Ananias's role in Paul's conversion, but I also don't want to understate it. Right. Like he's vital. He's critical. His obedience was was pivotal in Paul's restoration. Yes, Jesus encountered him on the road. Yes, Jesus blinded him. Yes, like I think I think it, that encounter with Jesus is what what allowed Paul's old self to die. Right. But it was the encounter, the obedient encounter with Ananias that initiated that process of restoration that was like the springboard for Paul into mission. And so I, I think we there, there's this fine dance, right? There's a fine dance. We don't want to overstate our role, but we also need to make sure we don't want to overstate Ananias's role, but we also need to make sure we don't undersell his role either. And in the same way, when we think about us today, like our obedience in walking with Jesus is critical. It's mission critical for God's mission. Sure, we can make this this statement, and I think we make it because, I'll, I'll be honest, I think we make the statement because we are uncomfortable because it, it we feel like we might be overstating our position. But we make this statement of, well, it's God and, and God can accomplish it. Sure, God can accomplish it. But God, again, I go back to like Matthew 28. We work through Matthew. Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples. Mm -hmm. And I will be with you, right? He's going to be with them. He's going to be working in them and through them. But it's them. And so I guess it's just like, uh, just as Paul's obedience and and Ananias' obedience is critical in the story, in our stories today, our obedience is of the utmost importance. Yeah, and everybody doesn't have to be a Paul. Everybody doesn't have to be an Ananias. God recognizes our traits and helps helps sort all those things out. But in that, we all have a role. If we don't have a role like Ananias, we may not, as you've pointed out, see what God has in store through someone else. But we have to be willing to be obedient. I mean, if we're not obedient, we we are gonna we're gonna we we potentially miss out on on our own experience or someone else's experience that can affect many. So, um, in in our obedience, don't don't uh, we don't all have to be a Paul. We don't have those same uh, traits, abilities, qualities. Like God recognizes that, but we all can be obedient to whatever God asks, no matter how little or insignificant it may feel, or how insignificant we may feel. As we kind of pointed out, uh, the fear of 
of Ananias could have easily deterred him from saying yes. But our saying yes is important whether we recognize it or not. I've been thinking a lot about our story and we've talked about how we need to share our story. We talked a lot of that about that um, through the past few weeks. And I think about moments in our story, this, this story that God has given us and things that seem so insignificant are some of the biggest things that God used. I think about Derek, when you were trying to decide where to go to church and it was, it was all it took was somebody to say, I think we need somebody like you around here. And that forever changed not only your life, but my life. Well, it did, it did help that I prayed specifically (laughs) that God would say, have somebody say that. So in that instance, it was a big deal to me because I recognized like, he, if we treat him like he's our friend and we communicate him, communicate with him like he's our friend, and like, hey, God, I need you to be really specific because otherwise I will miss it. And in that instance, yeah, he was very specific. But I'm thinking like that pastor had no idea that that's what you asked God for. Right. And something that seems insignificant like saying, hey, we, we could use somebody like you around here. Yeah. Change the course of our stories. Yeah. I think something that um, was said at, at the table that I was sitting at Sunday and that I think we have talked around without naming specifically both in this story and in, I mean, the story that you guys were just sharing as well um, that I think would be important to name specifically is this idea that God speaks. God speaks. God spoke to Paul. Who was persecuting the church. <laughs> who was actually persecuting him. Like Jesus even says that I am the one you are persecuting. He's talking to sinners and non-believers. He spoke to Ananias. Ananias must've had some really good close relationship with him, not just to hear him speak, but because I mean, what from the record that we get, it just says the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias and Ananias's response is yes, Lord. Right. Like God speaks right? in, in your guys' story. I am sure God spoke to the pastor. God speaks to you, Derek. Like God speaks to us. Right. And I, I think that is something that, unfortunately, I think it's something that we take for granted and also something that we're not necessarily very comfortable with. Yeah. And, and we don't always, even us, and I say even us because as a church, like we talk about the reality that God speaks and we talk about how we need to be listening for him and we need, we need to be seeking what he is saying and, and recognize that he is going to speak. Even, even we, even I, I feel like sometimes I walk through a day m- without the expectation that he is going to speak. Right. And that should not be the way that we live. Like that's not the way that Paul lived or Saul was living, even though he was walking in a different direction. He still was walking with the expectation that, that God would bring affirmation as you talked about on, on Sunday, Derek and um, Ananias must've been walking the expectation that God would speak. And we should be walking in expectation every moment of every day in every circumstance that God is going to speak. And so just as earlier, how we talked about how important our obedience is, I think just as important 
is our expectation of his speaking because that's how we walk in obedience. You know, as we hear what he says, we walk in, in accordance with what we hear. That's what we talk about when we talk about this idea of living vertizontal. <laughs> Just that word, living vertizontal, indicates an expectation that God is going to speak and an understanding that we are going to walk in obedience to what is spoken as we encounter those around us and as we just walk through life. And so this week, maybe that I, I, on Sunday, we talked about how the challenge was, you know, walk in expectation. Maybe we need to expand a little further and we need to say, you know, our invitation is to walk vertizontally this week an expectation that he will speak and in recognition that we will respond in obedience moment by moment, each and every day. As you journey with us, we recommend purchasing Midweek Meditations, A Journey Through Romans, which is available for purchase on Amazon. Also, be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.